0: To the broadcast friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting, and once again, I am your host James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I am broadcasting to you all the way from Western Japan here on this sixth day of April, 2012. Thank you once again for tuning in for tonight's edition of the broadcast. And tonight, I would like to do the usual Friday night routine here on Corbett Report Radio, where we dip into the CorbettReport.com archives to go over some of the work that I've done on a particular topic over the last five years. And tonight, we're going to be picking up from where we left off on the program a couple of nights ago, when we were talking to director Thies Snyder, who came out with the film Blindfold. And as people who listen to that conversation might know, or people who have watched the video, and I see a lot of you have done that on Vimeo, so congratulations, I think uh, it's definitely worth uh, spreading that around. But to anyone who has watched it, they'll see an excellent video that really does broach some of the issues that we all deal with in coping with this type of information when we first encounter it, and then really raising the question of how do we bring this information to others and i think it is important to uh to remember that people are not robots they they certainly do have an emotional side and just spouting facts and hammering people over the head with uh, names dates and figures is not necessarily going to change someone's mind as much as we would like to believe that to be the case and sometimes art and uh, and talking to people's emotions and things like that can be just as important as actually having facts. But uh, let's start exploring 9-11 in some greater detail tonight. Once again, we will be looking at some of the work that I've done at CorbettReport.com over the years on this subject. And as anyone who has been following my work for any length of time knows, this really is one of those issues that I come back to time and again, and it was the topic of my first ever podcast episode And it has always been a very interesting way in, uh, a a door into this type of information that we cover on The Corbett Report because it offers that one dramatic moment that shows and exposes what is really bubbling under the surface at all times. And it's what, for example, Peter Dale Scott would call the deep state, or there are different ways of talking about it. The shadow government, uh, Fletcher Prouty called it the secret team. Whatever you want to call it, it's that nexus of... Well, actors within government and other other agencies, and also in the private sector, who have interests other than what appears to be the interests of the government on the surface. And it is these actors, when they make bold moves like 9/11, they really are uh, risk being exposed. And that's the, so. It's always an interesting thing to look at that. But of course, what does this really expose? It exposes the uh, the underlying contextual. Uh, basis for for all of the different things that we see going on, the the economic collapses and everything else. It's really all of a piece. And once you start understanding the pieces of that puzzle and how they fit together, I think that's, uh, that's well, that's really the work that we've been engaged in at uh, CorbettReport.com for the last five years. So tonight we're going to look at one particular aspect of 9-11 that I think is extremely important, and I don't know if it gets as much attention as it should, um, because, well, there's many things to concentrate on on 9-11. Of course, most people like to talk about the demolition of the buildings, but 9-11 is about much, much, much more than just the demolition of the buildings. And so tonight we're going to be taking a look at information that has been covered up and actually hidden, classified, kept secret from the public. There is so much evidence that has been kept from the public about 9-11 that uh, that I think anyone, anyone, even the people who believe the 9-11 official conspiracy theory and who are willing to go along with all of the aspects of that, I think they would have to be suspicious if they were being intellectually honest about a government that is so concerned about keeping all sorts of information under lock and key and not letting the public see it. If there was nothing to hide... They wouldn't be hiding it. So on that note, we're going to be exploring some of my work on this subject in the past, and we're going to be calling for transparency on 9-11, or at least raising the awareness that transparency needs to be one of the central calls about 9-11. And on that note, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back with more Corbett Report Radio right after this. Broadcast friends, Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, I'm your host James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're looking at some of the work that I've done over the years on CorbettReport.com, specifically regarding 9-11 and the information that is being withheld from the public about the supposed rigorous investigations that were conducted by the various governmental agencies tasked with telling us what happened on that fateful day. And as anyone who has really looked into this issue at any length will know, of course there is an awful lot of information that they're holding back and not allowing the public to see... And why is that? Well, tonight we're going to be exploring that issue on the program, and we're going to start by taking a listen to a sample from an interview that I managed to conduct earlier this week with Kevin Ryan. And I'm sure many of you out there already know Kevin Ryan and his story, but for those who don't, he was a site manager for Environmental Health Laboratories, which is a, div- a division of Underwriters Laboratories, which uh, underwrote this deal at the World Trade Center. And uh, during the course of his work, he was a chemist and a laboratory manager. He began looking into and questioning the uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology, the NIST report about the World Trade Center and their investigation. And he started to raise questions and concerns about that investigation. And, well, lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, he was fired from his job. ...for rocking the boat. And since then, Kevin Ryan has really been a crusader and has been writing so many different articles... ...and and really doing incredible research on a wide range of topics. And one of those articles that he recently produced was called... ...Secret Service Failures on 9-11, A Call for Transparency... It was posted to Washington's blog, and I will put the link, of course, in the show notes so you can go and read the entire thing. It's getting into the question of the Secret Service and what they were doing, or more specifically, what they were not doing on 9-11 to protect the president. And uh, And he raises the, the question of why on earth would the the Secret Service have been so lax in their protection of the president during those extremely, extremely tense events for everyone who didn't know what was going on and perhaps there's something to be said for that. At any rate, we we talked at length about this art- article in that interview, so of course, please go and follow the link in the show notes for tonight's episode to find the full interview so you can listen to the entire thing. We're going to listen to a a couple of excerpts I've I've put them together, one at the beginning where we start talking about the article and what's contained in it, and one at the near the end of the uh, the conversation where we're talking about transparency. What is 9/11 transparency? Why do we need this transparency? how can the public achieve it so let's listen to this clip from this interview with kevin ryan and it starts with me asking mr ryan about the article and just explaining what it was that he was trying to put across in that article
1: okay yeah there are several parts to that article uh, the first one um, asks the question whether the secret service was aware in some ways, of the events of 9/11, and the reason that that question is asked is that the president of the United States was very well protected in many ways, except from the very obvious danger of terrorists from hijacked airliners. So we had snipers on the roof of the building; it was it was well planned. People were in the in the hallways. The police and the Secret Service were all over the place, and yet. The president was allowed to enter this building when at 9.03 in the morning on September 11th, uh, everyone else in the country was watching the second plane hit the World Trade Center. And frankly, most people in government were aware of multiple hijackings at that time. They were aware that these uh, planes were being crashed in the buildings, at least one of them. And uh, and so the question uh, becomes, why did the president enter the building? Why was he allowed to enter the building and put all those people at risk as well as himself? And why the Secret Service allow that? And then just minutes after he entered the building and entered the classroom, the uh, report of the second crash into the World Trade Center uh, was made. And he was told, and everyone knew, including everyone in the United States at that time, including myself, we knew that the country was under a series of uh, Coordinated terrorist attacks, and yet the president stayed in that classroom for uh, quite some time, and he has actually stayed in the in the building itself for another 30 minutes or more, um, even giving a uh, a national presentation on television, uh, essentially announcing to the world that he's he's still there in that building. Which uh, part of the difficulty there is that this. Um, photo opportunity of the president in this classroom, which was to support his education policy, was announced four days before that. And and the visitors to uh, this event were brought in two days before, given thorough instruction. Everyone knew that he was there at, in Sarasota at this Booker Elementary. And yet uh, he stayed there um, for 30 minutes after the second crash into the World Trade Center. So there's, this indicates foreknowledge on the part of the Secret Service, at, at least, if not others, that this building and the president was not a target on 9-11. Some of the other points made in the article have to do with the protection of the vice president and how quickly he was removed from his location, which was his office in the White House, in the, in the White House. And uh, there's some contradictory accounts. Most of them put uh, Vice President Cheney being removed by the Secret Service just after 9 o'clock at the time that everybody was learning that the the second plane had impacted the World Trade Center. And also at the time that the FAA, FAA and, and we believe also the Secret Service, was aware that two other planes were hijacked and were both headed toward Washington. This article goes into evaluation of some FOIA release documents that were received by 9-11 researcher Aidan Monahan. I've uh, done quite a, a bit of FOIA um, requests myself, but Aidan has done some spectacular work and really been persistent in the terms of following up. For example, on, these, on this request, he did ask for these documents, Secret Service knowledge, timelines, and was essentially refused. He was told, well, we can't find those documents. And then he asked again. And then they could find the documents. And they did release a number of kind of random documents. Unfortunately, not everything that um, really is important. Uh, I went into, in this article, um, interviews by two really critical people, one of them being Edward Marenzel, who was responsible for uh, the president's activities in, in Sarasota, and also his boss, Carl Truscott, who is the special agent in charge of the Presidential Protective Division. And Carl Truscott was in the White House. He was taking precautionary measures at a quarter after nine. Um, and yet the 9-11 Commission report says that Vice President Cheney was not removed from his office until 9-36, uh, quite a bit later than that. And well over 30 minutes later than most of the uh, uh, witnesses say. We have a White House photographer. We have the president's secretary. We have Richard Clark. All of these people saying that Vice President Cheney was removed from his office just after 9 o'clock. Why this is important, it's important to realize that there's one very critical testimony that puts – Vice President Cheney in the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, the PEOC, um, at about 9.20 in the morning. And the reason that's important is that there is a – this testimony from Secretary of Transportation Norman Mineta tells the story of how a young man would come in and give the vice president updates about uh, one of the planes coming into Washington. And and Mineta actually specifies that this is the plane – Flight 77 headed for the Pentagon, and he gives him reports at 50 miles out and at 30 miles out and at 10 miles out. Now, if Vice President Cheney didn't arrive in the PEOC until 938 or after, then he would not have been able to get those reports, according to Manetta. But all these other accounts say that he was whisked out of his office. He would have been there. And the Secret Service documents that have been released also indicate that Vice President Cheney would have been there in the PEOC prior to 9.30 a.m. That's validating the important testimony of Norman Mineta.
0: All very, very interesting points, and there are so many different uh, ways to to explore them. And of course, I would suggest people go and take a look at your article. But ultimately, what would you like to come of this article? You, it's a call to call for transparency. What kind of transparency are you looking for here?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I'll let you let you in on a, a, a response I got to this article. Um, I'm in um, periodic communication with one of the 9-11 Commission staff men- members. His name is Miles Keras, actually one of the more important investigators of the 9-11 Commission and authors of the 9-11 uh, Commission report. And I didn't send him this particular article, uh, but he did find it. He found it fairly rapidly. And uh, atypical of his response, he he came across as somewhat angry about it. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to tell tales on him here, but he he um, believed that the, for example, uh, Mineta was totally mistaken. He couldn't say why, but Mineta is just simply totally mistaken. Um, and he got a little bit offensive about, uh, 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 or defensive about, um, you know, his own research. But the main point he tried to make to me was that his report was based on primary evidence and I said, "That's exactly right. That's the title of the article: A Call for Transparency." Researchers like myself and Aiden, we 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 have to have all these FOIA requests to get documents that Miles and his staff just had provided to him, interviews just available to, to him. And uh, if we had all of that information, that's what I think. If anything, this article would uh, ideally do it would it would. Um, drive the release of Edward Marenzal's interview transcript, of Carl Truscott's interview transcript, of the primary evidence upon which the 9/11 Commission Report based their their findings and answered all of these questions.
2: All my you know it's time. To-
0: Here on Corporate Report Radio on this Friday night edition of the broadcast, and we're looking into 9/11 transparency, or should that be 9/11 opacity, i.e., the cover-up of all of the relevant pieces of evidence that would so easily dispel all of those crazy conspiracy theorist notions that the government is lying to us about what happened on 9/11. If they just release the information. And so, of course, they don't release the information. And what kind of information are we talking about? Well, as we heard in that last segment, of course, Kevin Ryan recently going over the Secret Service and some of the testimony of some of the key people that uh, is still not available for public consumption. I guess we're just not good enough to to see that information or, you know, whatever reason they have for, for keeping some of this testimony under lock and key. Oh, national security, I'm sure. And uh, and that's just one example of some of the things. Uh, just basic parts of the 9-11 timeline are still under dispute about when Cheney arrived in the bunker, etc. And uh, this is the type of thing that, at the very least, we should have the testimony, which one would hope would be sworn and on the record by Bush and Cheney about their movements and actions on 9-11. But, of course, even their testimony to the 9-11 commission itself was off the record and behind closed doors and was not under oath. So uh, it's not worth anything, and we'll never know what they told the nine eleven Commission, I guess. Or maybe in 75 years or so, the, the Commission might release uh, some of their notes to the public, but probably not even that, because as we've seen with the JFK case, every time they're due to release uh, the records from that investigation, they just, well, well, let's just pass a law to make it even even longer amounts of time that we can keep this information hidden from you. So that's just one of the aspects of what we're talking about here. Of course, another important aspect of what we're talking about is the quote-unquote investigation of the WTC Twin Towers and Building 7 collapses on 9-11. And let's look specifically at WTC 7. This is a point that I've raised a number of times. I continue to bang the drum on this one because there aren't enough people who understand or even know this to be the case. But yes, NIST is keeping the data that they used to create their WTC 7 model secret classified you cannot see the data and what scientists hide their data behind the rel- behind the cover of jeopardizing public safety they actually say it would jeopardize public safety to release this information let's listen to a clip from a Sunday update one of my re- weekly uh, news update series that I was running last year in which i went over this news story about wtc7 data being hidden by nist In other news this week, the finding that allowed the National Institute of Standards and Technology to withhold data from its World Trade Center 7 collapse simulation has finally been released via whistleblowing site Cryptome.org. The finding was made on July 9, 2009, and reads in part, quote, The disclosure of the information in connection with NIST's investigation of the technical causes of the collapse of the World Trade Center towers and World Trade Center Building 7 on September 11, 2001, might jeopardize public safety. Therefore, NIST shall not release the information. End quote. Although the finding was made last year, the actual finding itself was not available to those who had requested the information, leading many to suspect that it would contain details of exactly how or why the data from NIST's WTC-7 collapse simulation would jeopardize public safety, but no such explanation is to be found. Analysts note the finding is especially odd given that NIST itself has claimed that the collapse of WTC-7 was an extraordinary event unprecedented in history, and that they arrived at that conclusion using the computer model whose input and result data they have now classified in the name of public safety.
2: What we found was that uncontrolled building fires similar to those we have seen in other tall buildings caused an extraordinary event. The collapse of World Trade Center 7 was primarily due to fires. This is the first time that we are aware of that a building over 15 stories tall has collapsed primarily due to fire. We reached this conclusion by reconstructing the entire building, beam by beam, column by column, connection by connection, into a computer model, a virtual WTC 7 building
0: many are wondering whether NIST's reluctance to release their data is due to the questionable nature of the science underlying the simulation that many have pointed out as little more than a visual recreation of the initiation of a building collapse, which in itself explains nothing and does not even show the entire progressive collapse of the 47-story building.
2: Here's our structural model showing the building collapsing, which matches quite, quite well With a video of the event.
0: (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh. But really, honestly, you guys out there who haven't seen the video of this presentation, you have to watch it as they show the what amounts to nothing more than a video game, basically, of a a building collapsing on the screen. And it looks just like the way WTC7 collapsed. But it is nothing more than a fancy computer graphic, because they will not release the data that underlies that computer model, quote-unquote. If you don't release the model, it is nothing more than an animation. And the way they just throw it in your face and say, look, our model... It fits perfectly to the way that the building collapsed, is meaningless, absolutely meaningless without the data that they are keeping from the public. So uh, you have to laugh to watch that. Otherwise, I guess uh, you tear your hair out, but I don't have much hair left. Anyway, that, uh, that is from a clip from a Sunday update episode uh, called The Real Terrorists, um, and there's more to that. But I'll put the link in the show notes for tonight's episode. It's also available on my new 2010 Video Archive DVD. Once again, I am an independent uh, web journalist here, and I do rely on your support. So thank you to all the people who have put in their orders for that DVD. I'll be shipping a bunch out this weekend. So if you want to get your order in, please get it in soon, and I'll get it out to you right away. On that note, let's take a short break, and we will be right back. All right, friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio as we go over the CorbettReport.com archives tonight, talking about the very, very interesting information, the information that would make a lot of the aspects of 9-11 decidable, uh, being covered up and obscured and locked, uh, uh, put under lock and key and kept classified and secret and kept away from the prying eyes of a public that wants to know. And, uh, and once again, it's important to understand that it's not necessarily the, this piece of data or that piece of data that's going to uncover the entire operation and expose the whole, the whole house of cards for, for what it is. But, uh, but it is the cover up that often is the key to, to unlocking the, what's really going on and really getting the investigations rolling and getting the criminal proceedings rolling. And just like in Watergate it was the cover up that was the killer. Well I think in nine eleven we might have this similar situation considering the amount of information that's being covered up. And on that note, let's turn to an, in, an interview that I conducted back in August of 2010 with uh, 9-11 researcher Aidan Monahan. Some of you might be familiar with his work. For those who aren't, I certainly suggest that you go and Scroogle his name. Oh, sorry. Scroogle.org is no longer available because uh, it's, uh, it's not working with uh, Google anymore. Startpage.com, his name, to look for some of the work that he's done on this uh, before just some incredible work that he's, uh, he's done filing Freedom of Information Act requests to get information about various aspects of 9-11, or to at least get official government denials. And uh, this is an important aspect. This is a key tool that we can use to start at least getting a handle on what information is being covered up and why and how. And sometimes some really golden nuggets have leaked out. So let's listen to a bit of this conversation with Aiden Monahan talking about what got him into doing FOIA requests in the first place.
3: Uh, I began this about three years ago, and at the time I did it, it seemed like a uh, an unexplored area of uh, research. And um, since that time, I've you know sent off oh, just countless. I've i totally lost track of the number I've uh, I've sent to just multiple agencies, uh, New York State and federal, mostly. And um, it, it seems that the the, the reappearing theme is in that in most cases there is no information available. That is, in some in some cases there has been um, some information provided that is you know, proven somewhat interesting, in my opinion, in some cases.
0: Right. Well, let's run through some of that because, as you say, there's just so many things that we don't know about 9/11 that uh, we really should know by now, but uh, we're being refused access to. For example, just one example is the the logs, the White House uh, Secret Service logs from 9/11 itself. But what are some of the other examples of information that we don't have that we really should?
3: Some of that information seems to be mostly held by the FBI, and they, of course, have that all of that information tucked away in a file that has been declared exempt from disclosure by the uh, Department of Justice. And I've been busy lately trying to pry those records from them um via a civil rights lawsuit and it's proceeding somewhat slowly. I was hoping it would move a little quicker. Um and eventually well eventually I, I frankly expect them to just uh declare the judge to declare the records uh as uh, continuing to be uh, exempt from disclosure. But, you know, I just want to, if not getting the record, I want to have put them on the record as saying 10 years later, uh, no, you still cannot see this information. And basically, hopefully put them on the defensive where somebody else may step up in the future and try to continue this.
0: Well, absolutely. I, mean, I think that's definitely the goal we need to be aiming at, because uh, just what you've managed to uncover so far has been extremely revealing. And uh, just uh, regarding that FBI nine eleven records requests, uh, that lawsuit that you have ongoing, it's talking about things like records describing aircraft wreckage from Flight 77 and 93, and records describing the make and model of flight management computers or flight management systems, and multimode receivers, talking about uh, the uh, inventory control serial numbers for flight data recorders, all sorts of information, just basic details of the investigation that should be readily available, certainly now, nine years later, uh, when there's really no possible justification for hiding behind any type of s- smokescreen of national security. And it is, uh, I think, telling in itself that you're re- receiving such resistance to these uh, requests. And as I understand it, the FBI has actually attempted to claim that all 9-11-related records are exempt from FOIA?
3: That's correct. The whole entire, anything related to the topic is tucked away in a file that says hands-off, basically. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, just incidental information that would verify their story. I put it in my lawsuit. I cited all of the program's that have covered the controversies, BBC, National Geographic, and others broadcast uh, documentaries surrounding the uh, public questions and around certain discrepancies. And so one would think that uh, the Department of Justice would be compelled to, uh, for public relations reasons, just to basically put this information out there, restore public confidence, and, and put to bed all of these questions. But uh, they continue to fight me on this.
0: Well, that's certainly right. And the FBI does contain such a vast uh, amount of information on this, obviously. But it's not just the FBI. Uh, there's the FAA and the NTSB and the Secret Service. What, what other types of agencies have you requested information from?
3: I've also gone after some of the FAA records. It seems, according to an answer I got from them a couple of years ago, that they may be, those records may be under the control of the FBI. Um, Some information that uh, I was able to get, for example, was from the Bureau of Transportation Statistics for the uh, the travel times for the uh, aircraft in question preceding 9/11, and according, and that did generate an uh, interesting discrepancy. Um, For example, the agency' FOIA reply indicated that much information was not available for three of the four aircraft, actually all four, for the entire year of 2001, according to their FOIA reply. However, if one went on to their online searchable database for these aircraft and departure times, arrival times, in in the days, weeks, and months before 9-11, one can find that there are are actually times available. So basically we have two sets of information from the same agency regarding the same aircraft, which should rightly rightly cause one to wonder if this information is
0: authentic. Exactly. Uh, It would have to, obviously, when there's a discrepancy like that coming from the same source. And um, at the time, I think that particular story generated a lot of interest in thinking that maybe the planes had not flown since uh, the end of 2000. But I think just the discrepancy itself is something that, that really does need to be explained. Has there ever been some sort of official explanation for that or any update to the records?
3: No, I personally contacted their FOIA officer within a few days of getting the answer back, and he uh, explained to me where he had gotten the information from for the FOIA records, and it just happens to turn out to be the same location where the online data database is uh, located, basically the same source. So we're basically um, obtaining two sets of information from the very same source.
0: Interesting. Well, uh, one of the interesting documents that have come out recently was regarding NIST and the, an internal document that was a rejection of requests for information regarding the model that they used for their so-called uh, computer model, which showed the collapse of WTC-7 in quotation marks. Um, I, I don't know, was that, was that you, you that actually put in that request, or was that another researcher? No,
3: that was, those requests were... Uh the results of others, um, I recently followed up myself just to see what informa- what answer I could obtain, and I obtained the same answer, and that basically these files are exempt from public disclosure because they, uh, according to the NIST director, may jeopardize public safety. And basically the uh, the whole matter has been taking a- taken away from the Freedom of Information Act and, and put into the hands of Congress because Congress created the law, basically the, the, uh, the, uh, the escape hatch for NIST, to, via the director, put this information off limits.
0: Well, explain that process for people. How, how exactly are they claiming this is jeopardizing public safety?
3: Uh, it's basically just a very conclusory answer, and they don't really explain how or why the information is believed to jeopardize public safety. It's just that around 2002, I believe, Congress created this little escape hatch for an agency such as NIST uh, during an investigation to uh, basically put certain information off limits if it's believed to uh, jeopardize public safety.
0: Just incredible. And, and one of the other incredible things that your research has uncovered that I haven't seen get a lot of attention, but I thought was, was quite interesting when it came out, was the, uh, the information that you uncovered about a company called Turner Construction and the renovations that they were doing in the Twin Towers right up till the very morning of 9-11. Can you tell us a little bit about Turner Construction?
3: Yes. Um, some other FOIA researchers had gotten hold of some records regarding uh, some projects that had uh, been proposed in the year before 9/11, by the uh, Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, the parties who were managing the property at the time, and certain uh, contractor names popped up in those records. And uh, I decided to do some cross research on some of that information, and eventually determined that the CEO of the company at that time is, is somebody who later became a very rather close associate of President Bush himself uh... later became the mayor of dallas texas later attended um, economic policy meetings international economic policy meetings with president bush overseas with other foreign heads um, was appointed as a uh... A, a director of an organization known as the white house fellows by president bush uh, I, I don't recall the exact year this is after nine eleven and uh... who turned out out today to be uh, a neighbor of President Bush within a couple of miles, I believe. So, uh, yeah, some interesting, you know, associations tied up, you know, turned up rather there, and uh, also uh, the uh, director of NIST at that time also later became, um, well, I I don't recall the exact details. I I would have to pull it up in front of me again in order to recall uh, every detail, but... uh, yeah, there was definitely some uh, interesting associations between uh, the CEO of Turner Construction and President Bush.
0: That's right. And and tell us about what Turner Construction was doing or what we now don't know about what they were doing in the World Trade Center.
3: Right. There was a property management uh, assessment of the property uh, about nine months before 9-11. And within that um, assessment was proposed work upon the uh, steel-supportive columns within the elevator shafts, for example, among other many other things. And some of the deficiencies noted were rusting upon these steel columns and uh, abatement of asbestos containing uh, fireproofing material. Removal of, that, removal of that was also proposed. Um, so when one says that uh, there was no opportunity for any unscrupulous party to... Uh, tinker around within the World Trade Center, you know, vis-a-vis the uh, demolition or controlled demolition route, um, that that answer would would certainly seem to be false. There seems to have been uh, ample opportunity for uh, some uh, unscrupulous work to have been performed there possibly, and certainly there was uh, significant work being done in that area. And it turns out that Turner Construction was more than likely the uh, entity doing this work it appears that uh, they were working up until the day of the very morning of nine eleven on the on the property and going back as far as three or four years at least, according to some records. And uh, also happened to turn out that uh, Turner Construction also built the headquarters of an uh, organization known as the Naval Sea Systems Command, which is a division of the Department of Defense, and one of their divisions, the Indian Head Naval Surface Warfare Center, just happened to be one of the only kids on the block at the time, so to speak, who are developing the energetic nanothermic materials that were later discovered in the World Trade Center
0: dust. Right, absolutely. And and I'm sure my listeners will be familiar with Kevin Ryan and his work looking at some of the connections of the people involved in, in testing and creating these nanothermic materials Absolutely, it just keeps going deeper and deeper. And uh, again, very telling that uh, apparently the uh, the records describing the work that they were doing and the projects they were doing in the World Trade Center were destroyed in the World Trade Center on nine eleven, along with other key documents that we know from, for example, the uh, the Enron investigation records and things like that. So, just more th- valuable documents that were destroyed That's on that day. Correct.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I did ask for the uh, the. Port Authority of New York and New Jersey for any records uh, regarding Turner construction for work done on the property, the World Trade Center, and they did advise me that that all that information was destroyed on 9-11. I'm currently trying to seek some ways around that uh, obstacle. For example, in order to perform major work on properties within New York City, one has to obtain permission from the New York City Department of Buildings and Permits to proceed with work, and I've finally been able to find the Freedom of Information contact for that organization and have some requests pending and also uh, other requests with the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey for copies of these uh, permits that they may have had, which may very well indicate who was performing this work there at the World Trade Center and maybe some other information hopefully and those those requests are pending, and hopefully we'll have those answers shortly
0: well incredible i I certainly look forward to that and once again would urge people to go to nine eleven blogger dot com to to keep an eye on that uh, that information resource for more information as it as it develops on that but uh Aiden Monaghan, I think it's self-evident that the the tack that you're taking with freedom of information act requests is an extremely fruitful area of research and and you never really know what kind of information you're going to end up with uh when when you put out these requests and I think that's one of the the sort of wild cards that that um we have in this research in, in hopefully getting out some some of the nuggets that can lead us uh, towards other areas of research and other things that we didn't even think to ask before so it's an extremely effective tool and to that end i think maybe it would be a good idea to to encourage other people to take up this tool because obviously you're doing an incredible amount of work but you can't do everything yourself so so tell us a little bit walk us through the process of putting in a freedom of information act request and what really goes into this uh, whole process
3: um, okay, sure. Yeah, all federal agencies have access to, uh, or basically operate through Freedom of Information Act laws. And, uh, if you know what you're looking for and you know who has what you're looking for, submitting a request is really not that difficult lately because, um, uh, most agencies have gone to the electronic means of doing so, and basically visiting their websites will allow anyone to find eventually, without too much uh, trouble, the links to the uh, Freedom of Information Act officers of each agency and uh, the uh, email addresses for those people. And if you know what you're looking for, you can basically fire off a request within five or ten minutes.
0: Well, once again, we can't expect that everything is going to come out via FOIA. Uh, Certainly, the, the key documents and the key things that would really really blow the whole thing off one has to imagine they're not going to just slip out under foia but it's interesting the information that does come out and it is something that each and every one of you out there can get involved in doing filing these requests and finding uh finding more information about what really happened on that note let's take another break we'll be right back to finish tonight's episode Welcome back to the closing minutes of Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we have been looking at various aspects of the 9-11 cover-up and the type of information that is being withheld from the public. And, of course, there's much, much more to get into on this subject. I hope you will be using CorbettReport.com as the resource that it is to look at some of these subjects and follow the links and find out more and research for yourself. But the point is again tonight, is to stress that there is something that we can be doing that is proactive. We can be, of course, not only spreading the information about this, this cover-up, this ongoing cover-up, but we can also be contributing to it. As uh, Aidan Monahan pointed out in the last segment there, uh, it's extremely easy to, to get these types of FOIA requests going, and the people are generally very helpful in trying to, to get those requests uh going as well. And sometimes, uh, obviously, there's a lot of stonewalling and reticence to release documents. Sometimes you'd be surprised what actually will come out, and you never know until you try. So once again, it is something that we can do. And of course, we've talked to uh, Jason Leopold on this program before about blackballing and uh, the, the types of tricks they try to pull on people with FOIA. But once again, it is a tool, and if you don't use it, you'll never get anything out of it. So it's something to be thinking about anyway. And of course... Uh, This is another key aspect in confronting that type of cognitive dissonance when it comes to 9-11 truth that we were talking about with T. Snyder the other night here on the broadcast, where it was pointed out that uh, people usually don't want to listen to just sets of facts and data and things. But this is another entry point. This is a way of of at least getting people curious, well, what is it that they don't want us to see? Why don't they want us to see, for example, the WTC7 model data? What could possibly jeopardize public safety about knowing how they imagine the WTC7 collapsed? It is extremely puzzling to a lot of people, and it should at least get them engaged in the process. Because once people become engaged in the process and start looking for the information themselves, Well, exactly as in my case, that's when the penny dropped for me and I started to realize that there was really something to this. When I started to look into this information for myself instead of just listening to what people were telling me, once people get involved in that search for information, I think it is just a snowball and it's uh, not long before they arrive at the inevitable conclusion that we have been lied to. There has been an awful lot of information that has been kept concealed. And once again, if they have nothing to hide, why are they hiding it? But of course, they'll tell you that you should have nothing to hide, and you should have nothing to fear about an all-seeing eye of the police state looking over your shoulder and reading everything you read online, and all your emails, and listening into all your phone calls. As the NSA is getting you know, shaping up to uh, to basically unveil to the public with their new data center, as James Bamford pointed out in Wired recently. And now, as is the as is becoming apparent in the UK press, uh, that's all happening in the UK as well. As ISPs are going to have to start looking and monitoring and. recording recording all internet traffic so that the uh, big brother state can spy on everyone at all times it's just going to get more and more and more in our faces and i think we all know that and that's why we have to start and continue i'm sure many of you are already doing this but continue spreading the word about this to others and looking for those ways that we can ignite the uh, fire of curiosity which will really kindle and spark the uh, the fire in the mind once again the revolution of the mind the change in paradigm so that people don't just go along with whatever the government is telling them they actually start questioning things for themselves and once again no one can really dispute that that is a bad thing well except for the the puppets in charge of the uh, the so-called nominal governments that are puppeteering uh, the actions of our of the people around the world. But on that, uh, well, rather serious and sober note, we will be ending the broadcast for this week. So once again, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for all your support. And I'm looking forward to doing this all with you again next week. So thank you once again for listening and take care.